You are listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And today on episode 31 of the Coffeehouse, we're going to be talking about Gabriel Faure and his first violin sonata in A major. Gabriel Faure was born in France in 1845, and he was exposed to music from an early age. His father was a teacher, and Faure was allowed to play on the harmonium, which is a type of small organ, that was in a chapel near his father's school. When he was nine, Faure's musical gifts were noted, and he was sent to the École Niedermeyer in Paris, which was a school of religious music. Eventually, the renowned composer Camille Saint-Saëns became a professor at the school, and his modernistic style opened Ferré up to a whole new world of music apart from his religious music that led to his later innovations in life. He was very successful at school, winning many awards for his work, including one of his earliest compositions, the sacred work Cantique de Jean Racine. Upon graduation in 1866, Faure got a job as a church organist, which he held for four years. However, his current job was out in the countryside, and Faure longed to return to Paris. Eventually, he did, having secured a job as an assistant organist at Notre Dame de Clenacor. And unfortunately, the Franco-Prussian War erupted around that oh, time, no. and Faure was enlisted in the Imperial Guard. But upon returning from war in 1871... Faure took many passing organist jobs, but also began to secure his place in classical music society by visiting various Parisian salons. And he and some other composer friends, notably Dupac and Chabrier, formed the Société Nationale de Musique, which turned into a performance opportunity for new works to be premiered. And Faure took full advantage of this with the first violin sonata and the piano quartet. As a romantic composer, Faure was eager to meet with his contemporary idols, who were Franz Liszt and Richard Wagner. Over a period of about five years, he made many musical voyages where he met Liszt many times, and he even managed to see Wagner's entire operatic ring cycle. So though he was impressed with the Germanic romantic tradition, the French Faure still retained his own French style, which could be described as more flowy and light compared to the heavily orchestrated Germans. Now like so many composers we've seen, although they were brilliant and small works exhibited their skills, larger works like symphonies were a source of trouble and heartache. And Faure did feel incompatible with large symphonic forms, but his smaller works allowed him to develop his personal style. Having been educated in religious music tradition, he was quite familiar with modal music, and his innovative mind allowed him to use the modal scales and transform them into very appealing modern harmonies, which we can first start to see in his Requiem and also in his incidental music. In 1896, Faure became a professor of composition at the Paris Conservatory. 
While his composing during this time was quite productive, he was also a prolific teacher. So notably, he taught Maurice Ravel, who was of fame in the next chapter of French musical history, and also Nadia Boulanger, who notably went on to give lessons to almost every prominent composer of the mid to late 1900s, including Aaron Copland. Also during the 1890s, Faure had a happy time of traveling and attending music festivals. He continued to compose numerous works for stage and opera, and these works during this time were his largest, with a suite from his Peleus et Melisandre being his symphonic masterpiece. In 1905, Faure was named director of the Paris Conservatory, and while this made him almost instantly famous, it did consume a lot of his time that he normally would have been devoting to composition. He also became a music critic at this time for the magazine Le Figaro, and this was kind of against his usual kind nature, as he apparently disliked telling people bad news. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice man. <laughs> Now, right before World War I started, Faure finished one of his grandest pieces yet, the opera Penelope. However, by the time it was to be premiered, the war had erupted, and the opera wasn't to be seen until the end of the war. And unfortunately, when it finally premiered, it was not as popular at the end as it would have been before the war. However, during wartime, Faure was able to focus again on his beloved small compositions and produced an outpouring of piano works and songs. Touched by the violence of war, his normally sweet and flowing French style does begin to show a tinge of anger and angst or despair. In 1920, Faure retired from his conservatory post, but he continued on with his compositions. For years now, he had been suffering from hearing problems, but much like everyone's favorite deaf composer Beethoven, his last few pieces, including his only composed piano trio, were works of genius. Gabriel Faure's Violin Sonata No. 1 in A Major was composed in 1876 on the earlier side of Faure's musical output, and it is full of the classic romantic style of the late 1800s that we have come to know and love. The sonata was written in dedication to the son of Pauline Viardot, and Pauline hosted an influential musical salon that, thanks to an invite from Saint-Saëns, made quite a mark on Faure. The premiere of the violin sonata was a hit, and Saint-Saëns reportedly remarked he, quote, felt the sadness that mothers feel when they see their children are too grown up to need them anymore, and recall that Saint-Saëns had been Faure's teacher and friend for years. So yes, this piece is extraordinary, as Saint-Saëns described, and though it is just written for two instruments, the piano and the violin, it achieves a wonderful fullness of sound, so let's explore that aspect a little bit first. As the piece starts, we have only the solo piano. However, this piano part is really written in four parts, kind of like a Bach invention almost. So we have the low bass note that sustains throughout, called a pedal tone, and then we have running eighth notes in the middle. And there are two melody lines that are split between the right and left hands, and you have to kind of play them with your two inner fingers while your <laughs> other fingers play other things. This and is why it, I can never do piano, is because I don't have a third arm. <laughs> you know, it's really a challenge to play if you don't have that third arm, having to bring out those melody notes while keeping the eighth notes at the same time in the background. Thank you. 
also near the beginning of the piece, we hear an example of something Foray does throughout the piece to add dimension to the sound, and that is to utilize octaves. We hear just a simple upward moving scale in quarter notes. But this figure is then repeated with a scale in eighth notes that jumps an octave on each note. The resonance these additional tones bring make it seem as though instruments have been added even though they're not. Now it's interesting to listen to this because I remember talking about another composer that used octaves extremely well, Aaron Copland. He would also use octaves in his pieces to create a semblance of fullness of orchestration that wasn't there. And the reason I think I like this comparison is because through Boulanger, Aaron Copland was actually a musical descendant of Forays. So perhaps this was the early inklings of that idea that Copland really brought to fruition in his pieces. So although we have been referring to this piece as just the Violin Sonata, its full title is actually the Sonata for Violin and Piano, which suggests that the piano really has an equal role in the performance. And this aspect of the performance is really brought out in the middle development section of the piece, when the piano and the violin have a fun game of stop copying me. (laughs) So at first, we hear the violin come in with a sweet statement, which is then immediately followed by a repetition in the piano. this goes on for a while. Then, in the next phrase, the violin gets revenge by copying the piano this time. The violin gets revenge by copying the piano this time. (laughs) So one thing that I think really makes French romantic music stand out is the delicate drama the composers managed to write into it. Faré has just given us fury and in-your-face drama at the end of the development section. He then has a little interlude before the recapitulation. That is somewhat cheeky or cheesy, but it still really has a dramatic, oh, woe is me, feel to it. So it starts with the cessation of the running eighth notes in the piano, who plays whole note chords instead. And because of this, we really just have the violin proclaiming things in a very solo voice. Then, as the violin holds a high note, the piano crescendos on a repeated E major chord, which is the tonic for this phrase, that finally moves to a B flat minor chord, the flat 5 of E major, so essentially not in the same key. But this key change allows the violin to continue on with its dramatic singing phrase. I'm really excited about the end of this movement, and let's take a look at why it is so exciting. There are really four phrases to this fun. First, we have the running eighth notes in the violin again, though this time not in octaves, but just the same note repeated twice in a row. The tonalities Foray explores with these notes are dissonant and mysterious, however. Next, these eighth notes lead up to a high sustained sigh that kind of works well to release the tension that had been built. 
And this is followed by the first theme that winds down the excitement and leads you into thinking that the movement has a quiet ending. But you'd be wrong. As the violin holds what might have been the last high notes, the piano begins to rumble with low eighth notes. And the violin joins in. And they resolve in triumphant unison to A major tonic. What a piece. And the way that Faure makes so much happen with just two instruments, I think, is one of the hallmarks of what makes his music just so great. That's something that I really like about chamber music in general, that you just have a few instruments. It can be a duet sonata like this, or it can be a quartet or something. But the complexity that the composers write into just those few instruments really makes these kind of chamber pieces extremely interesting to listen to. They do indeed. And that will wrap up episode 31 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and like what we do, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes and Google Play and telling a friend who you also think might be interested in the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Asa. Thank you so much for listening. Parade's Violin Sonata in A Major Movement 1 was performed by Corey Sorovsek and Jeremy Day. The Piano Quartet No. 1 Movement 1 was performed by musicians from the Riviana Steins Music Institute Chamber Ensemble. Suite from Piliaz and Melisande Movement 1 Sicilian was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra conducted by Barbara Schubert. The Nocturne No. 13 was performed by Peter Bradley Fulgoni. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Find us on Facebook and share this and other episodes with your friends. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. 